For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Fix Your Sciatica podcast, where we meet with experts and clients and discuss how to manage your sciatica and low back pain without the use of medications or surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Ashley Mack, and I'm a physical therapist as well as the founder of iFixYourSciatica.com, a go-to resource for pain management. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you for listening. And if you are tuning in again, welcome back. And lastly, if you find today's episode or any of these episodes of this podcast to be helpful or insightful, please follow and rate this podcast on whatever platform you're using. The more followers and ratings we get, the more we can help people like you. And without further ado, let's get started. Now, when it comes to relieving pain, there's many components that have to be taken into account and inflammation is a very big part of it. And I find that in order for us to get a better understanding on how various different factors influence our health and our lives, my job is to be able to reach and speak with the experts. So then that way they can shed light on the concept of inflammation and, uh, and other things. And when it comes to inflammation, I think about the profession, the specialist uh, rheumatology and the brilliance that these doctors have when it comes to looking at how inflammation has a role when it comes to pain. So on today's episode, I have Dr. Farah Saladin here, who's a rheumatologist, and she is going to help us talk about all things inflammation, inflammatory back pain, and her profession. So Farah, thank you so much for hopping on today's episode. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I'm just super thrilled to be here. I am a big fan of your, um, I, I fixed sciatica and I refer my patients to your website all the time. So yeah, I'm so glad we could do this today. Yes. Okay. I'm so glad you're here. So um, for the listeners, they probably have heard your name for the first time. So could you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself and, and what you do and how you help people? Right. So I'm a rheumatologist. Um, and so rheumatologists are basically um, subspecialists within the field of internal medicine. They go through an, an extra two years of training after finishing up with internal medicine, and they focus on uh, autoimmune and inflammatory conditions um, that might affect connective tissues, bones, or joints. So that's what rheumatology is as a profession. And I finished with my fellowship back in 2015 from UCLA. And now I'm here and I just founded Room Without Walls and I see patients all across California. Amazing. So uh, the seeing patients all throughout California through something like telemedicine, it was like the without walls, doesn't matter where you're living, but you have the opportunity to help these people in with the amazingness of technology. So let's talk about this concept of, I think you were saying like how autoimmune and inflammation can actually affect our connective tissues, bones, and joints. Um, tell us a little bit more like for today, you know, our, our, our audience is focused, um, 
our audience is challenged with experiencing stuff like back pain and sciatica pain. So before hopping on today's episode, we were talking about how we can discuss inflammatory back pain. And I think a lot of people, and um, there's a lot of information about infl- uh, a lot of information about inflammation, and it can be quite confusing. So from a rheumatologist's standpoint and point of view, can you tell us a little bit more about say inflammatory back pain and that how that influences like a little bit about that? So rheumatologists, they always view joint aches and pains through the lens of inflammation, right? But we also have criteria that have been determined as way back as in 2009 that we utilize as a community of experts to really um, shift through um, the the sea of mechanical back pain to really uh, hone in on truly inflammatory um, uh, etiologies for back pain because we can um, help patients with the types of treatments that we offer but there are criteria out there. And the one that I would wanna bring up today is called the ASAS criteria or uh, spondyloarthritis um, criteria that was um, that came about in 2009. And so the ASAS or ASAS criteria, your audience can Google it or look it up. Essentially what we do is we look at We start off with a genetic marker and then a list of clinical features that uh, are classified as spondyloarthropathies, okay? And then the other arm of the criteria is we can start with imaging and then work our way down and look at certain clinical criteria that again fit under the umbrella of spondyloarthropathies. So spondyloarthritis basically means inflammation of the spine or um, spinal arthritis. It's it's an all-encompassing terminology, um, but it's, uh, so it's it's easier. It's the presentation for spondyloarthritis or inflammatory back pain is quite variable in the population. So it doesn't help to think of it in terms of something that's fixed because the presentation is so variable from individual to individual. It's more helpful to think of these, um, of this, um, um, of this um, entity as, as affecting body parts. So we look at, we don't just look at inflammation in the spine when we're assessing for inflammatory back pain, we would be interested in looking at other joints the pattern of joints that are involved, if there are peripheral joints aside from the spine that are that are implicated here. We also look at skin. Patients with psoriasis, for instance, can also end up with spondyloarthritis. Um, and so there's some pattern recognition in terms of the types of joints involved, whether both sides of the body are affected versus um, uh, one side. Is it asymmetrical, symmetrical? And then we look at other risk factors within the spondyloarthritis, and I can delve into it if you wanted me to. Yes, we will in a second. You brought up something really interesting about the concept of like, you know, if we're talking about ASAS, you have two big pieces where you have genetics and imagery. So um, what would warrant someone to, or what would warrant a rheumatologist to take a deep dive into like looking at the genetic markers? So is it like, What's the pathway for a person who's experiencing joint pain or back pain or spondyloarthritis 
and then they come to you and then you're like, okay, let's get some genetic markers into it. Tell us a little bit more about that. Right. So, um, usually, um, patients get referred to rheumatologists and yes, they're can be a delay of several years. Studies have looked into the delay in reaching a rheumatologist for care for inflammatory back pain. And I, th I think at the primary care level, a lot of physicians are pretty savvy now in terms of picking up on certain symptoms. So for instance, if patients are uh, presenting with stiffness first thing in the morning, that could be a sign that this is likely spondyloarthritis versus mechanical back pain, because mechanical back pain would tend to worsen through the course of the day as you're going about and going about your work and moving. Um, inflammatory back pain tends to be at its peak or at its worst after following periods of being sedentary. So first thing in the morning, getting out of bed or after sitting for a while, you're watching a movie in a theater and all of a sudden now you're trying to get up and you're feeling stiffness in your joints or in your spine. So those might warrant some type of workup. And then usually by the time patients have made it to a rheumatologist, uh, somebody along the you know path has already check for inflammatory markers, basic ones like uh, a sedimentation rate or CRP. And if those are elevated, that can further um, help with um, working through with the diagnosis. And would you say, uh, this is really more sort of curiosity because I'm very intrigued by this and um, I couldn't get, really get quite get a clear uh, answer via the research, but is there like a familial um, linkage, like from like, you know, having mom and dad have some sort of, uh, you know, inflammatory back pain and that being passed down to children. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, there is a genetic comp component to it, which is why we also uh, place some value on checking for this genetic marker called HLA-B27 when we're working up for spondyloarthritis. Um, however, it's um, uh, really uh, when we look at familial trends in spondyloarthritis, um, we can um, uh, tease these apart uh, a little further based on the type of spondyloarthritis. So for instance, something like psoriasis or psoriatic spondyloarthritis would have a different genetic or familial burden than say um, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis associated back pain. So they, they're, although they're all bunched into the same family of spondyloarthropathies, uh, when we really tease through these different types of spondyloarthropathies, we can um, um, come down to a different genetic or familial risk there. Um, but if patients did have a genetic marker like HLA-B27, we know from uh, various studies that it confers a higher risk of progressing to a more severe form of ankylosing spondylitis um, where the spine can become fused. So um, in families that have a very strong genetic history for inflammatory back pain, we, we could, um, uh, we, you know, we could counsel them a little bit differently. Wow. That's really interesting because I'm not a genetics 
mastered like my my background is on the mechanical aspect so it's really cool to learn about what you what you and your colleagues search for when it comes to from a genetic standpoint and what those tests are um you brought up this interesting uh this concept of the use of imaging um to to help i guess like identify and diagnose or just like have a better idea like a visual of the challenges that your patients are going through so um Let's say, for example, someone, uh, yeah, let's talk about like imaging, because as you said, it does take either a couple of months or a couple of years before someone actually comes to see a person like you. And in some cases, you might have to schedule either another medical image. Um, would it be safe to assume that you're looking at things differently in a medical image compared to, say, like an orthopedist or say like a, like, I guess, a regular GP or something like that? And can you elaborate on what that looks like? Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Okay. So yes, we do. First of all, rheumatologists image different joints are very interested in looking at the joints differently from how physical therapists or orthopedists would be looking at joint structures, right? We are more interested in looking at synovium and cartilage, um, and so when it comes to, since we're sticking to the subject of back pain, there are, there, we're very interested in facet joints, which have a sliver of synovium around them. Um, often, I, I actually have had patients where, you know, they've been suffering with back pain for many years following a motor vehicle accident. And I incidentally happened to see that, oh, there's some facet joint arthritis there. It's a little more systemic. And, you know, maybe there's something else that's going on. And so in the whole like traumatic index event, these little things tend to get missed. So I do look for those uh, changes in the smaller synovial joints. Um, in terms of spondyloarthritis and inflammatory back pain, um, Rheumatologists really like looking at the sacroiliac joint, which is centered more on the pelvic area for, for our audience that, that's sort of not very familiar with anatomical terms. So I wouldn't jump at getting an MRI of the cervical, thoracic, or lumbar regions. I would be more interested in looking at what is known as a short-taw inversion recovery or stir sequencing of the sacroiliac joint because there we can, um, uh, the, the sensitivity for MRIs of the SI joints and picking up inflammatory lesions is a little bit higher than if we were to image the spine. So we would be looking at things like bone marrow edema or fatty infiltration. And um, those types of changes we can uh, pick up with greater sensitivity when we image the sacroiliac joints. So, and then we've actually, there have been studies back in 2015 that looked at, you know, is there any added value in imaging the spine? And really there's very little added value in imaging the spine in addition to the sacroiliac joint if we were uh, really trying to pick up on inflammatory back pain as the etiology. So yes, we do look at different joints. <laughs> That's really cool. I, um, cause I remember, so as a physical therapist and like with the training that I've gotten, um, what's really interesting when it comes to the sacroiliac joint, um, what I've led to believe and the way that I practice, um, the SI joint doesn't move as much because it's kind of like a Lego block. And so whenever I hear like sacroiliac joint pain or SIJ pain, I'm a little 
uh, suspicious because I'm like, okay, well, the joint doesn't really move that much. So it's really interesting and exciting to hear that rheumatologists like yourself, like look at the SI joint because of its sensitivity and appeared ability to identify some of these inflammatory markers. And you brought up a very interesting point, um, which I think um, a lot of the, the people who aren't in the, the medical or scientific field is this concept of sensitivity. And I, um, so for, for the audience out there, um, in research and the use of assessments and tests, there are a couple different measures of how effective that, that test or tool is. So we have our validity. Validity itself is actually indicating is what be, is whatever being measured is in fact being measured. Is like, if you are going to be measuring the distance between um, your front door to your powder room, is it actually measuring the true distance? So that's, that's, that's a very important part. The second piece or the second point is this concept of reliability. And reliability is, is the opportunity or the ability um, it's a, it's a lot tongue twister, but the, the ability for it to be repeated over and over again um, across many different testers, tools, and everything like that. But this concept of sensitivity and specificity, those are two other really important pieces when it comes to evaluating tools. So, um, Farah, um, if, if you could, if, if you're up to it, would you like to be able to explain like the concept of like what sensitivity is, like, and how right. that, you know? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, that's really <laughs> get up because I wasn't thinking that this is where it was going to go, but it's actually, you know, I'll tie it in clinically here, right? So, and here's where my nerdy thing gets really excited. So, okay, so sensitivity and specificity you mentioned um, in terms of um, back pain imaging, right? What we find is, and I'm not going to quote, um, a specific literature here, but I can bring it to you at a later time. But he here's the general sense, right? So um, an MRI of the sacroiliac joint would be would have higher sensitivity than a plain radiograph or an x-ray, let's say, of that area. That we know for sure. The numbers might be something along the lines of 50% sensitivity for an x-ray and 87% sensitivity for an MRI. However, the specificity is flipped. So if we found changes on x-ray, uh, that has higher specificity for us than um, finding changes on an MRI. So for our patients and audience, I think uh, the best, the easy way to understand this is that if you've never been diagnosed with inflammatory back pain and there's uh, some suspicion that this, there's something that we're missing and we're trying to look for, I would go with an MRI. But let's say you're, you're already, you've, you have, you've carried this diagnosis for a while with or without having ever had an MRI done in the past. Say you had other ASAS criteria that you fulfilled and you never really got to an imaging and you've already been on treatment. Um, and now I'm wondering where um, your treatment plan is going and whether you're, I might just go with an x-ray to look for changes because once you have changes radiographically on plain film, you're already at an advanced stage of the disease, right? So that's where, that's why we can say that if there's changes, uh, if I ordered an x-ray and there's changes already, then I, it's, it's more specific, it's a more specific um, uh, there, there's a high likelihood that you truly 
do have this problem as opposed to, oh, do you have it or not? Does, does that explain it? I think I don't that know explains if I it perfectly. Yeah, no, that, that was, you answered it really well. And I love the fact that, you, as you said, you nerded out on this because this is something that I always get really excited about. And, and it's always really uh, refreshing to hear people talk about it and professionals like yourself talk about it. And so um, for you listeners, if you're kind of confused about what uh, Farah has said, um, one acronym that I actually used myself when I was going through school to try to understand like the, the specificity and sensitivity, um, specificity me- means that there's like a low, like a, like there's a high likelihood that if you tested positive on this, for this condition, you most likely have it. Um, a high sensitivity would mean that if you test negative for this condition, the likelihood is pretty high that you don't have it. So that kind of helps us kind of clarify the difference. And it, it's just a, a, a very, um, I guess, watered down version of what you just described, Farah. So, um, but it, it is really, really exciting for you to, to break that down. Um, Let's talk about this concept of facet joints. Um, I think what's really interesting and I find so fascinating, I didn't know this until we actually started talking about this today, but how rheumatologists look at those smaller joints, those those areas that might not necessarily be looked at on a grand scale, but from a facet joint standpoint, it's like any sort of joint for you listeners out there, joints move. And if you're having an excessive amount of movement, or even if you're having an excessive amount of inflammation, it's going to cause some sort of dysfunction, whether it be stiffness or pain. And so um, I think that's like, if, so don't discredit the, the concept of of irritation and, and issues going on at the facet joints or even those smaller pieces. And if you are, um, well, this is just how I see it, but if you're, you've gotten imaging done, but you're still not getting relief and you're not really quite sure where to go, being able to meet with a rheumatologist might be able to give you a much clearer idea, especially with um, all the really cool information um, that Farah has provided for us today. So you know, if we're looking at it, like, so we had genetics, we have imaging. One thing, uh, one thing that amazes me about physicians is the fact that, you know, so much you, I don't know how you fit all this information into your brain. It's pretty wild. Um, I know for me, when I work with my patients, um, I, I also get pretty amazed at how quickly I can get to like various different conclusions, but you brought this concept about pattern recognition. So, um, what's really cool about pattern recognition is like, uh, I forgot what book I've read, but they said pattern, pattern recognition is like the step above mastery of a specific subject. Um, and so um, if we're talking about patterns um, and, and pieces and, and being able to formulate all this together, um, let's see, I think we talked about it. So we have imaging. Uh, and we have the genetic standpoint, is there anything else that fits into the pattern of where a physician or someone who's listening is like, oh, I should go to a rheumatologist to, to discuss that? Right. Yeah. You know, uh, pattern recognition is, so you started with facet joints, SA joints, they're smaller joints. I'll just finish up with that first before we move on. So yeah, so these smaller joints are very interesting, often overlooked, but let's not underestimate the SI joints because really the whole entire gluteal mass, uh, you know, your Trendelenburg and all of those problems arise from problems with the SI joint or structures around it, like the piriformis muscle. Um, So um, yes, the SI joint is really important for stability and 
even though if it's, it's a sliver of a joint, if it's fused, it can lead to some issues. Um, now, coming to pattern recognition, um, I think what I would say is that most rheumatologists, you know, uh, will will want to know what types of joints are implicated. So if the small joints of your hands are, are, are more problematic than the larger joints like the shoulders or the knees, that might mean something different to a rheumatologist uh, as opposed to if a larger joint was uh, more problematic for you, right? So getting a sense of which joints, the symmetry, asymmetry of the problem, those are things that really help us um, with differentiating. Now, it's not... And then also, you know, we uh, context is very important. Uh, for instance, there is, uh, I don't know why it's coming to my mind right now. I'm just going to mention it like chikungunya virus, for instance, right? It's chikungunya is a virus that has, that causes arthritis that's very similar to rheumatoid arthritis. But I wouldn't really be asking about chikungunya of of a patient who's residing in California, but yes, if you've been to the Caribbean and come back, then maybe I'd be interested, like if you were bitten by mosquitoes there, right? So there's pattern recognition and there's context um, and all of these um, different inflammatory conditions have their own flavor. And that's what we're looking at, which is why patients get upset. And sometimes I have patients that come to me and they're like, oh, our doctor just looked at us for two minutes and said, this is what I have. And, and you know, so... Um, I think that's because we, once you see patients over and over and over again over several years, you just learn to focus in on what may matter medically. And, and I know it can be upsetting for patients because you know they're expecting to spend an hour, two hours to really understand this and you've just given them 15, 20 minutes of your time. So um, I think that's where pattern recognition is helpful as a physician but it's not uh, satisfying from a patient's perspective when the doctor is working off at, by pattern recognition. So there is that dichotomy there, I think. We are going to take a quick break to tell you about our awesome new program called the Sciatica Protocol. If you don't have the time to see a professional, but are tired of trying to figure out this recovery on your own, then the Sciatica Protocol is for you. Harness the power of a knowledgeable physical therapist through your phone. It takes no more than seven minutes per day, and it is designed to help you recover as quickly as possible. Now, having an on-demand physical therapist can cost thousands plus hours of sessions. But with the Sciatica Protocol, you'll receive the same, if not better, customized care completely free. And why are we making this program free? Because I believe that everyone deserves to live free from pain without actually having cost be the biggest obstacle. It is simple to start and all you need to do is log into ifixyoursciatica.com forward slash the dash sciatica dash protocol and fill out the nine question quiz to begin. The link for the program is in today's show notes. You bring up a very interesting point and um, I even noticed for myself, I mean, I remember back when I was a young physical therapist, it would take me two hours to do a full on evaluation on my patients. But now I can, I can go evaluation, assessment, intervention in the span of 45 minutes because of that pattern recognition. But you're absolutely right. I think, um, and I'm glad that you brought this concept up and how it can kind of be perceived as kind of just like no time at all. But you bring up a very amazing point that doctors such as yourself have seen so many of these patterns. And so you can truly identify that. So that's a very, very cool. Um, 
Let's move on from joints uh, to this concept of nerve function. So people who are experiencing sciatica, it's an, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's an irritation along the sciatic nerve and that a sciatic nerve can extend all the way from the brainstem all the way down to the tips of people's toes. And so I think for, um, inflammation has a very interesting impact on nerve function. So could you tell us a little bit more about what it like inflammation from your, from your perspective and it's, it's influence on how nerves can function. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I'm going to take us back to, um, imaging here for a second because inflammatory, um, lesions of the spine tend to affect the spine in different areas. We talked about that, right? So for instance, um, if you've got a mechanical problem, say this is your um, spine, and then you've got the little disc sitting, the sandwich in between, and it's getting squished because of mechanical reasons, you're overweight or whatever, there's a lot of um, biomechanical pressure on the spine. And so now that disc is squeezed out and it's going to impinge around and impinge on the nerve and cause sciatic pain. That's one way. That's the mechanical explanation, right? But it, in terms of um, inflammatory lesions, what would happen is that, you know, you would get pain, nerve pain, um, not at the earlier stages of the disease, but at later stages of the disease, once the remodeling has already taken place, because there's inflammatory lesions, and we call them CILs, um, uh, anterior inflammatory lesions on the vertebral body. So it's almost like if you have um, the two bones and then you've got the uh, a disc in between, it's the bone starts to grow. They're called osteophytes. So a lot of inflammatory lesions actually cause increased bone growth. And that eventually leads to ankylosis or more bone growth. And then those extra growths um, that are strategically placed in the spine or unfavorably for the patient will then start um, impinging on that nerve, which is trying to find an exit out of the spine, right? So that's where um, looking, uh, understanding how, what the imaging is, is showing and how much it has progressed is important, but nerve damage, I would, I think would happen at, at more advanced stages of inflammatory back pain. And, and the hope is that, you know, patients would be diagnosed sooner, get on treatment sooner so that these inf inflammatory lesions are not leading to ankylosis or bony outgrowths that will then go on and um, hurt the nerve. Wow. So it's this inflammation that actually causes the bones to grow uh, at a faster rate. I mean, uh, for you listening out there, like all of your cells are going to be turning over, like they're going to die and they're going to be replaced by new cells. But it's uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Farah, but with this inflammatory process, um, the, the turnover of cells is actually pretty quick. So there's a deposit that grow, the bones grow faster, um, which can then in fact affect how everything runs throughout the body, particularly like if we're looking at the spine itself, how, how it actually influences the nerves. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I guess the right word that I, I'm looking for is remodeling. Bone remodeling is something that would happen over time with inflammatory and then it leads to ankylosis 
in some types of spondyloarthropathies, one very specific one that comes to my mind right now is ankylosing spondylitis. Ankylosing means it's fused, right? So imagine this nice spinal curvature that you have is now completely fused and you're, you've got a stick for a spine rather than a nice curvature. The curvature is important. Once you lose the curvature, your weight-bearing uh, ability for the spine is compromised, right? And so... Um, yeah, so there's remodeling, there's bony growth, there's ankylosis or fusion of vertebral bodies that can take place. And you would understand this better than me because you, as a physical therapist, you work one-on-one -on -one very closely over time with patients, right? So, um, and and that's the beauty with um, collaborating with other specialists is, um, you know, rheumatologists love physical therapists because a lot of, as soon as we have, we're onto a diagnosis, we want patients to be active. We want them to work with physical therapists or exercise specialists to continue to um, um, stay limber and keep working. And wor working out actually helps with the inflammatory process. So a lot of our patients become gym addicts. They love being in the gym because they actually feel better when they're exercising. I'm so glad you brought that up. I often say to my patients that motion is lotion. And when I work with a lot of patients that I see, if they're really stiff, when they first get out of bed, it's like probably the worst part of their day. And then once they get themselves moving, they feel a lot better. I like to use the analogy that um, when people experience stiffness like that, they're, they're kind of like the tin man or the tin person in the Wizard of Oz, where not moving at all is kind of like the water that actually creates rust in the joints and then movement itself, uh, pain-free movement. When I try to get people more active, um, pain-free movement is actually the oil. So, uh, Farah, would you be able to talk a little bit more about like the, the science and the importance of why movement itself is, is so beneficial to deal with this type of inflammation? Right. So movement can be in any shape or form, but I think um, movement, from my perspective, I think with patients who suffer from back pain, there can be a host of um, benefits that would come from movement. So there's the weight loss aspect of movement, right? Then there's the strength training aspect with movement. Um, building your core strength is important for any type of back pain issue, whether it's mechanical or inflammatory. You need more support. You need to um, jack up the support around the spine, essentially. And then, so, um, yeah, movement is essential, um, especially when it comes to inflammatory back pain. As soon as patients are diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis or any form of spondyloarthritis, we do um, that's one of our uh, college guidelines is to set patients up, connect them with a physical therapist so that they can safely get back into exercise. If they've been, you know, not been, if they've been sedentary, then it's a process getting them to becoming active. If they're already very active, then we just encourage them to stay active. Yeah, that's movement. Movement is the best. Um, one thing that kind of brings it up, and I think that, uh, you know, we're in 22 right now, 2022, um, we're kind of at this interesting stage and in just like the overall COVID pandemic. But one thing that uh, aside from us, obviously the importance of health and, and, and being healthy, um, this concept of stress and actually how stress can, can influence our body. So, um, would, from your experiences, have you noticed that the level of stress that people go through, um, has a relationship with the level of inflammation that they've experienced in the, the people that you've seen? 
Yeah, no, there definitely is actually. So at an epidemiological level, we have studied a few factors that we can now confidently say are linked with uh, autoimmune or inflammatory etiologies. And I'll come to stress, but the, but you know, smoking is really closely correlated with um, the onset of rheumatoid arthritis through a process called citrullination. Um, and, and so we can pick, pick up, pick those markers up as well by testing for it. Um, but yes, so environmental factors that affect your risk for developing an autoimmune inflammatory disease, that's one factor that's been looked at at an epidemiological scale and been confirmed to be um, causal or associated with it. Uh, the second one that I can confidently say is um, our um, cavities. If you have dental cavities or gingivitis, chronic inflammation in the mouth, that is also highly correlated with an increased risk for developing um, inflammatory or autoimmune um, arthritis. So it's not just your genes. We talked about genetics at this onset, right? Um, the third one is interesting, which is stress. Now with stress, uh, the, uh, what really um, is intriguing is that, uh, you know, we've looked at trauma. Um, and by, uh, so if you've had traumatic injuries, those can, uh, there are studies in support of those traumatic incidents leading to a higher incidence of developing psoriatic arthritis because the changes start occurring at a, it's called microtrauma at the, at the confluence of where the tendon and the bones come and meet. These are called antecial sites. So sometimes microtrauma or even major trauma can trigger a few years later, um, uh, this process of um, your autoimmune or inflammatory system uh, system getting revved up. Now, I can't really speak to how much stress management can offset this risk because I don't think that data is very clear yet, but definitely that's where a lot of science is heading and people are very interested in studying not just um, trauma, trauma from, a, uh, from micro trauma and motor vehicle accident trauma standpoint, but also people are looking at emotional stress possibly as a trigger for these um, diseases. Um, I, I don't, I think the jury is still out on that, but I mean, I'm pretty sure that, you know, any type of emotional stress could also possibly lead to, if not the disease itself, certainly how you would manage it. And then that could play into um, your, um, the burden of the disease you would carry over, over a lifetime. I really appreciate that answer and being able to say like, yeah, it's growing in science, but we don't have like very clear information on that. I think one of the easiest things that uh, us humans can do is like just kind of create a conclusion based off of what we've seen or read, but not have clear cut data, which is what scientific studies are there for, to be able to help us have a true understanding of these mechanisms or risks and, and, and the effectiveness of whatever intervention. So I, I appreciate that. And that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, so thank you so much for sharing with that. Um, my next question for you is, um, you know, you're an expert in rheumatology. You have this amazing 
uh, company, this program, Room Without Walls. And this is how people can find you. And this is your platform. So tell us a little bit more about that um, and how people can get in touch with you. And 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 yeah, tell, tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, actually, um, uh, the concept of Room Without Walls had been in my mind since back in 20, I want to say 2016, 2017. I actually started a Twitter handle by the name of Room Around because I just liked the pun on the words. <laughs> and I held on to that Twitter handle. It's still, it's still active. But I, I think I was toying with the idea of telehealth even before COVID. And my motivation for that was... Um, you know, I grew up in South Asia um, and I came to the United States when I was, uh, you know, in my, when I was 21. And I, I just always felt that my skill sets could be applied to, you know, for uh, could benefit people in many other parts of the world, not just here in the United States, because here, you know, that we have maybe about one rheumatologist to every 5,000 patients, let's say on average, I'm just gonna make, you know, that's I think roughly oh. if you were across. Um, and, but then there are places in the world where you have a po populations of millions to a single rheumatologist, right? And so telehealth was always appealing to me for that reason. I just didn't, I wasn't um, anticipating COVID obviously, but then after COVID rolled around, I was frontline working at an infusion clinic um, and I realized that a lot of what I was doing could be done and delivered closer to the patient's home, especially when it came to biologic treatments. Um, there are so many treatment options now available for, uh, for autoimmune inflammatory disorders in the form of biologics. These are usually injectable drugs um, and they can be injected safely at home. There are also oral alternatives available and so I just felt like you know we could I could reach more people and I can get things done remotely and and deliver the care closer to their home and the other motivation for telehealth I think for me was that um, patients should not have to worry about being placed geographically in one area forever, you know, and they, if they become attached to their physician, they should have the option to travel, take their physician with them, right? And so, and this is very true for the Bay Area. A lot of patients travel and they live between continents. And uh, I've had a few patients that wanted to just consult with me, even if they were traveling. And so I started looking into interstate licenses and things of that nature so that I could travel with my patients rather than, you know, expecting them to <laughs> find a rheumatologist wherever they went. So, wow, that's awesome. So you went along this line to be able to serve more people, um, which I find what's interesting is that uh, I think patients and people kind of miss that. Like they're, they're always like, oh man, my, 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 doctor, my physical therapist, like they're just seeing like patient after patient after patient, but being like for us to be able to say like, we're doing this so we can help more people is a, is a very important piece. And so, you know, there you have the listeners. We have, we have Farah who's creating this, this company room without walls so that she can serve many people and not be bound by the limitations of geography. So, um, 
Farah, if someone were to be like, oh my gosh, I'm listening to this. Farah knows what she, 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 she knows what she's talking about, which I wouldn't have had you on this episode if I didn't think you knew what you were talking about. But here you have these listeners who are like, oh my God, oh my goodness, I want to speak with her. I want to work with her. What's the easiest way to get in touch with you? Right. So you can find me um, through my website, Room Without Walls, which is R-H-E-U-M. But I'm pretty sure if you typed in R-O-O-M as well, it would work just as well. Or you can call me at 831-215-4040. And uh, yeah, and you can leave me a message. Uh, Emma is at the front desk and she will schedule you with me. It's going to be a virtual visit the first time around. And uh, yeah, and then I just take it from there. Awesome. You heard that listeners. And I'm also going to be putting her information into the show notes. So if you didn't get that information, you can click on the link in the show notes and you'll be able to go directly to her. Um, last question, because uh, and I, w- I, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but I don't want to take up too much time of your day. But uh, before this episode, we were talking about your experience in, uh, in Pilates um, and how, and, and how awesome you are and how much you love it. So um, Let's talk about, um, just for the last couple of minutes, how you see like the use of something like Pilates in with uh, how, how, how that can be implemented with someone who has some something like uh, inflammatory back pain. Right. Um, so, you know, I got into Pilates again around 2017. I lived next to a club Pilates um, for a while. And really, I think I became hooked to it. And I just invest I became a teacher trainer for um, Pilates and now I've invested in a reformer and I um, I really feel that Pilates is a is, is, is almost a science of movement right I mean it's not really a sport for me and if I could get every patient with back pain onto a reformer, I I really feel that, you know, it could be a game changer for people who live with back pain because, and so, you know, I, I'm not, um, I don't, I I don't offer Pilates classes or, um, you know, I, I just feel like I'm a huge advocate for it because I, um, it's, it's my hobby, you know, I, I, I use it as a hobby, but I also see the medical benefits coming from it. So Joseph Pilates, was definitely onto something when he was dealing with injured dancers. But I think in the field of rheumatology, we don't really talk. I don't, I don't know of any other rheumatologist who has a great interest in Pilates, but I think in the future, I, I would want to see Pilates becoming more integrated into musculoskeletal health and with physical therapy as well, you know, um, because there's uh, there's small muscles that you can exercise on a routine basis, and those small muscles, uh, in a controlled way, like Pilates, is a very controlled form of exercise. And I think if you can it, it do it on a regular basis, um, and if it can be can be more accessible for patients, we can really uh, deal with a lot of back issues, whether it's inflammatory or mechanical, I think patients would benefit from doing Pilates on a regular basis. So find your nearest Pilates studios studio. <laughs> there you have it. You got that endorsement from Farah. Um, yeah, I, I've only done a couple of Pilates classes myself. Um, they're challenging, but um, I, yeah, absolutely agree with you. I think it provides like a very 
um, easy to, to introduce form of exercise. And as you said, um, exercise is probably one of the best things to help out with uh, battling these issues. And especially if you're doing it in the right way. Um, I have personally not been on a reformer, but I do see the benefits and how it can um, provide uh, people who are experiencing this. So um, you have inspired me to try out a Pilates class myself, which I think there's one literally across the street from me. So I'm probably going to be booking a session probably within yeah. the next week or so <laughs> to, to get that done. So um, Farah, thank you so much again for your expertise, your time and your friendship um, throughout this entire process. And I'm so excited for Room Without Walls. I'm so excited for everything that you're going to be doing. And uh, again, if you want to get in touch with Farah, um, the information is going to be in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you got some help from today's podcast. And for more info, check us out at ifixyoursciatica.com. Have a fantastic and pain-free day. No patient-therapist relationship is formed by listening to this podcast. We are not providing medical advice, and all information should be confirmed by a medical provider. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.